Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Mikhail Carter. Today, I have the pleasure to speak with Dr. Charles Price. He will discuss his book, Rastafari, The Evolution of a People and Their Identity, published by New York University Press. Thank you so much, Dr. Price. It's great to have you on the channel. All right. It's my pleasure to be with you, Mikhail. Wonderful. So for those um, who are unfamiliar, can you provide listeners with a brief background of Rastafari and Rastafari origins? Okay, sure. I'd be happy to do that. So one way to think about it, Mikhail, would be that most people, and I say most people, most people are probably familiar with reggae music and they're probably very familiar with Bob Marley, Robert Nestor Marley. And so when you say Rastafari or Rastafarian, they think about ganja, they think about um, dreadlocks, uh, they think about reggae music, right? But in fact, the rest of people um, are far more complex than that. And so one of the things that I was really interested in was really telling that story of the complexity of their origins. And so the Rasta people trace their origin or their development to roughly 1932, 1933. And so right there, one of the interesting things is that how do you get a full-blown collective identity in such a short period of time? So literally, you know, when I started this, we were still in the 20th century. And so how do you expect, how do you explain, excuse me, the fact that um, a group can develop a full-fledged, fully developed, complex, collective, and personal identity in such a short period of time? So that was one of the questions that I wanted to answer. So 1932, 1933, the first evidence shows up, and I'll say 1933 for sure, the first evidence shows up that Rasta people are in existence, and this is roughly around December 1933. Um, Now, I'm sure that they were active and present before then, probably around 1932, because some of the founders, we have records that, that, that show that they arrived or were in Jamaica 1931-1932, but what they were doing, we don't know. Um, there are just no records that help us understand what they were doing at that point in time. So um, we began with a handful of people, Mikhail, literally a handful of people. You know, I'm talking about a half dozen, you know, 10 people who had this idea. And the idea revolves around the fact that in November 1930, November 2, 1930, King Rastafari, two words, R-A-S-Tafari, T-A-F-A-R-I, was crowned emperor of Ethiopia. That's a whole story in and of itself. But this news was broadcast in Jamaica through newspapers and through other media, such as magazines um, like National Geographic. And many black Jamaicans took note of this, that here is an African king who is coronated as emperor in front of the world. And not only is this African king an emperor, but this king assumes these titles as a part of his royal identity. And these titles are king of kings, lord of lords, conquering lion of the tribe of Judah, elective god. And so if we go to Revelations 5... Verse 5, you know, uh, Revelation says, Weep not, behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah has returned to open the book thereof, and he takes on these names. And so there are Jamaicans who are paying attention to this. And again, it's 
there in uh, in the news. So Rasta's whole Emperor Haile Selassie, and Emperor Haile Selassie is a name that he took upon becoming emperor. These Jamaicans noticed that they noticed that this king has now become emperor, and they recognize now that there's a connection between this new emperor of Ethiopia and the Old Testament, and they start to dig into it. And the folk who we know according to records, and I'm sure there were far more than we know about, but they uh, are all men, and they're also travelers. So they are Jamaicans who have lived abroad and worked abroad. So they worked in Costa Rica. They worked in Panama. They worked in New York. Um, They're travelers, right? They worked and lived in Cuba. And so um, they've been a part of this black diaspora and they're back in Jamaica now when this happens. And so they began to, in different ways, each of these men, these handful of men began to um, develop this idea that the emperor is Christ's return and that God, Christ's return is black and African. And so these are the origins of the Rasta people that, it's a faith community that's grounded in race, um, grounded in religion, and you can't separate those two things with rest of people. You can't separate the faith and religion, right? Those two are inseparable. Who believe in a God return, that the Messiah has already returned, and that this Messiah and God is Black and is African. And so that is the origin. And so, you know, the the common practices is that people take the name of their God either on their own or someone gives it to them. So that's how we get Rastafarians, right? We get Rastafarians or Rastafari from King Rastafari, who then became Emperor Haile Selassie I. So does that make sense to you, Mikhail? Yes, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much. And so, um, your book traces the development of Rastafari through four generations from the 1930s, like you said, to the early 2000s. And so um, how did you become interested in understanding and researching Rastafari? And how does this book build on your previous book, Becoming Rasta? So that's a good question. And um, I, I really was pleased to see that you asked that question. So I've always been interested in identity and how it develops and how it evolves. And uh, when I began graduate school, I worked for a woman named Susan Greenbaum, who who was um, she worked for the Bureau of Indian Affairs in the United States. And part of what she did was she helped tribes in the United States um, go through the federal acknowledgement process. And so what I realized was that she studied something called ethnogenesis, and that is how groups form and evolve over time. And what I realized was that there are all these Native American groups who have these really complicated identities that we don't understand at all. And once you begin to dig into the records and the oral histories and talk to people, you you get a very different sense of who they are as uh, compared to how we think about them or even what we read about them, you know, in textbooks, right? And so I realized that ethnic genesis is at the heart of collective identity, right? And so I wanted to learn how to explain how these collective identity identities evolve. So for instance, what does it, you know, what does it mean and how do we get a people called Cherokee or, you know, what's the roots and the origins of Christians and Christianity? And so I applied these same questions to the rest of people. 
what are the origins of these people? Where did they come from? And part of the challenge for me when I first started was that, you know, as I began to understand and read the literature, this was 1980s, mid, late 1980s, is that all of the accounts, Mikhail, were from the outside perspective, right? And so all of the accounts were sort of like, oh, these are, the Rastas are people who, whose, whose existence traces to relative deprivation, so that was a popular theory at the time. And relative deprivation simply means that people who look at themselves and see themselves deprived compared to others, that is poor people, oppressed people, they had these dreams and aspirations and they create these fantasies about the world, blah, 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 blah. So I'm like, that, that's, that doesn't jive with my experience, right? Another is cognitive dissonance, which is kind of similar, right? That poor people's, or black people's experience is kind of out of sync with mainstream experience. And as a result, people create these fantasies to try to match the two. And so there were all these explanations for Rastas, um, including, you know, they are the offspring of capitalism. And I was like, mm, these are insufficient. Now, I think the capitalist explanation has some legs because essentially what many of those people who took that line of view were saying was that, okay, capitalism creates people who it generates people who are dispossessed. And I, I would agree with that, right? And and generating dispossessed people, it also uh, generates people who reject the capitalist system. And I think there's some truth in that too, right? And so in, in that sense, there was some uh, currency in the capitalist explanation for Rastas. So if you think about Jamaica and you kind of um, think about capitalist development in Jamaica, so there are all these things that you need to take into consideration enslavement, all right, and the wealth and profit generated off enslavement, dispossession after enslavement, so um, lack of access to land or decent paying work, um, the denigration of blackness, and I, I wouldn't say that's about capitalism per se, but it kind of gets entangled in this. You can exploit people because you think that they are inferior, and so black people um, get caught up into that. So there are all of these things that are tied to capitalist development that I think are part of the ex- explanation of the origins of rational people. And I try to include that in it. But I think the most important starting point is really that the Rastas really were about prophecy and trying to make sense of the coronation of this new king in relationship to them and that we need to sort of tie all these complex things together as an origin narrative. And if we do that, Mikhail, it means that we can't start at 1930 when the emperor was crowned. And we can't start at 1933 when we find the first documented evidence. And there may be some evidence before that, maybe 32, but I like to use 33. So if we can't do that, then that means we have to go deeper and farther. And we need to explain what preceded them because you just don't, I don't think you get a people who believe that God can be black out of the blue, right? So there must be something that precedes it that makes this view of the world possible. And I dug into that, it was there. And so there's this view that God is black or that black people are the chosen people that goes all the way back to the literally 1600s. And it's called Ethiopianism. And you can think of Ethiopianism as a kind of proto-black nationalism. 
and black nationalism in the sense that Ethiopianism valorizes black people. All right. And so if you're in an environment where black people are denigrated, this can be a powerful thing to know about this idea that black people are chosen by God. All right. That the struggles of black people through enslavement and after, um, they will be redeemed. And Ethiopianism gave black folk an anchor in a very venerable past that they could now sort of make a connection to the ancient uh, Christian uh, narrative stories, right? That they could really trace themselves and see themselves in this story. So Ethiopianism was powerful. It wasn't widespread, but it was a powerful set of beliefs about uh, Black identity and Black people. And so I realized that that had a significant impact on a significant segment of Black Jamaicans that long preceded the Rastafari by decades and centuries. So I began to connect those stories. So, for instance, there's a revival minister, Alexander Bedward, who um, again began inspired by prophecy, but also inspired by race and faith and the two of those together. And as he as his faith community develops, he comes to not only see himself as um, divine, you know, and that's a common practice in Jamaica that that black folk kind of call themselves God um, or godly. But he also starts talking about a black savior and black redemption. And I also find out that many of his adherents were also among the first Rastas. So in other words, Mikhail, we have a connection between a movement that preceded the Rastas and the emergence of the first Rastas. And so what I really, what ethnogenesis in that framework allowed me to do was to connect all those threads of the past to the present in the form of this con- uh, particular group. And I, I think that that's an important way to think about the world is to really um, recognize that what we see in front of us has deep roots. So, you know, if you imagine a tree or an iceberg, you know, what you see is only a sliver of what's actually there. And our job then is to excavate what's there, whether it's to go beneath the water or beneath the soil to um, understand what's there and how it got there. So that's kind of roundabout um, way of answering that question of the development. So then this group comes into existence. But then, Mikhail, it's not like there's a linear development of any people or identity. And so the question becomes, how do you kind of capture this complexity, right? And so the, I talk about nonlinearity and emergence. And in your Listeners may not know what emergence is, but it's a concept from the um, science of complexity. And emergence is the idea that um, in the social and natural world, there are things that have properties that you can't reduce to those properties, that they're so complex that the way that they exist is that they exist because of the interaction of the elements together and not because of the elements of an individual property. So think of your body, for instance, right? You have a brain, you've got lungs, you've got heart, you've got this circulatory system, but you can't reduce your body and your consciousness to any one of those things, right? So all of those things have to work together to produce consciousness. It's just not one of them. 
And so I, there's a, there are a lot of things in the world that work like that. And we have to think about how they operate together. And I think collective identity is one of those things, right? That there are all these things operating together. And because there are all these things operating together, you cannot predict how they are going to play out over time. So if we were to go back to 1930 and you were to ask me, Mikhail, say, ah, what's going to happen to these people? I'd be like, ah, they're going to disappear. They're going to vanish. You know, I mean, how's this thing going to thrive? But in fact, it, it, it struggles, but it eventually thrives. And so, you know, that becomes, how do you explain this, right? How do you explain this group of people who become pariahs from the outset, outcasts, the British government out to eradicate them, to liquidate them, but they persist. And eventually, over the course of a few decades, they thrive and they become exemplars of black culture and identity. So I wanted to explain, how does that happen? How do you get a bunch of outcasts who then become exemplars of what how black people can imagine themselves? So, you know, everybody... Not everybody would kill, but a lot of people wear locks, right? Right. And they have no idea what that's about, where it comes from. But, you know, that is part of the popular consciousness. Like, so, but it has a history and an origins. And a lot of it, not solely, but a lot of it has to do with the rest of the people or of the uh, appreciation that many of us have now for the continent of Africa and the people of Africa and how those of us in the diaspora feel kinship to them. Well, a lot of that has to do with what Rastas brought to us, not solely and completely, but they were doing these things in a conscious way long before it became common sense for most of us. No, thank you so much for 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 that, for sure. And so um, can you talk about colonialism and how colonialism and race impacted Rastafari? Um why was it feared, like you said, and suppressed? Right. So what do you study, Mikhail? You're a historian, right? Yeah, so I'm a historian. Okay. And what, what's your... Yeah, focus? so my research interest focuses on Black internationalism, 20th century social movements, um, and the intersections between culture and politics. Okay. All right. All right. Good. So, so some of this probably makes some sense to you. Yeah. Okay. So... I don't know how much you know about British colonialism, but, you know, I scratch my head sometimes <laughs> when I dig into it, right? And so I sometimes I marvel at how they were able to do what they did to pull it off. And I think Jamaica's a good example of that, right? And so how does colonialism intersect with the rest of people? So once the British government discovered that there were these people in Jamaica who believe that an African emperor is God returned and they are now swearing allegiance to this African emperor and they are disavowing the British crown. So they're swearing allegiance now to this African emperor and say, ah, no, we're not dealing with the queen and the king of England. We're done with that. So this becomes seditious you know, in the colonial British mindset, right? And so they've got to squash this thing, all right? And so that's literally what they set out to do. I mean, right away, McKill, like 1934, they're out to crush these people, right? And their view is, is that these people are a threat based on their experience in the empire. So it turns out 
that some of the colonial judicial folk, or, or let's just say the colonial, um, what's the word? What's, how do I want to put this? The employees of of colonialism, you know, they get shifted from different posts, right? So Kenya, you know, um, uh, Nyasaland, and so on. So it turns out they have folk who've spent time in Kenya, Nyasaland, and other places who end up in Jamaica. And they know that there's ferment and rebellion seething in Nyasaland and in Kenya, okay? And they know that this is about race, and they know it's about blackness and they know it's about anti-colonialism and they're worried that the same thing is going to happen in Jamaica. And I think that that worry has some grounds. All right. Um, from their point of view, not necessarily from what the rest of people were capable of, because I don't think they were a threat in any way near what was, was happening, say, for instance, in different places in the continent of Africa. But the potential was there if you look at some of the large rebellions of Jamaica. So they were concerned. And from their point of view, they need to crush this. And their view of crush, at least in Jamaica, is to liquidate the leaders. And so that was another interesting thing to me was that, okay, maybe as a policy, if you crush Native leaders, then you can destroy a movement before it gains traction. Okay? But it didn't work in this case. And so that was another thing I wanted to explain was if you if you defang the Native leaders but the movement continues, there's something else going on, all right, that's deeper, um, that's more substantial, that it doesn't depend on charismatic leadership to continue to exist. And so I wanted to explain that as well. So uh, 1934, well, actually uh, early 1934, the uh, British have all this network of spies in Jamaica. They're going to the street sermons. They're listening to these men who were preaching about this new black God and King and the Christ return. And these constables, um, these officers are recording these. And this becomes the basis for a charge of sedition against two of the most prominent leaders at the time, Leonard Howell and Robert Hines. There were other leaders as well, but the British in their mind believe that these were the two most dangerous, right? And so they thought that they could create an example of these two by arresting them, charging them with sedition, um, put them on trial, let the nation see the stupidity of their reasoning and their thinking, and this will be done. And the exact opposite happened in that by putting them on trial, they gave these men a platform to uh, profess their new faith, this new faith, this new belief, which is really fairly coherent right away um, and intelligible, put them on trial, put them on trial for a week. You report on it for an entire week. It's the main story. So you're literally telling Jamaica about these new people and what they believe and about this new black God. And, and so in, in that sense, the, the British government played an important part and facilitating the growth and the development of, of Rasta people, despite what they thought they were doing, which was exterminating them. And they continued this policy for about three decades, and it continued to have the same results. And so I was laughing uh, a bit at the beginning about how, how the British were able to kind of get away with some of the stuff that they did, and they made the same mistake for about three decades, you know, before it finally collapsed on them. Right, for sure. So speaking of how um, the intent 
was completely different and they unintentionally kind of spread Rasta um, to Jamaica. I wanted to like dive into like how your book details like these several vectors um, that help grow the popularity of Rastafari, um, like sometimes unintentionally, like you said, but then also like, what are they? How are you defining vectors and um, how did they help to spread Rastafari within, within and outside of Jamaica? Okay. So, there's a lot of, I mean, there's a vast literature on ethnogenesis. And one of the things that I found in that literature is just that there's no sort of coherent um, set of propositions about how the process works. And so one of the things I wanted to do with this book was to identify uh, or at least pose some propositions about what's involved in the development of a new group identity. So one is nonlinearity or emergence, and that's just the unpredictability of any particular group's development. We don't know where it's going to go. You know, some groups never make it past their first generation. Uh, others continue to persist, so how do we explain that? Another is power asymmetries, and that's where, for instance, colonialism comes in. Like, so what's the dynamic between this any group and the wider society, you know? Um, so we want to understand those power dynamics between any group and other groups in society. A third is the role of non-members, right? And it's easy to for us to think that any group's identity is the result and work of that group. And in fact, that that's not the case. It is any collective identity is the work of a lot of people, including non-members. So it's not simply what I think of myself and my people, but also what you think. And because we're in dialogue in one way or another with what you think, and you mean the abstract you, um, but in dialogue with what other people think about us and what other people say about us, right? So um, you have to take into consideration those dialogues that are happening that, that inform any collective identity. Then to get closer to your question about uh, vectors, there has to be some mechanism, some engine of growth that causes this group to expand beyond its original number, okay? And that can happen in a number of ways, right? So, you know, you can think of, a, like, I'm in South Carolina now, and every time I turn around, there's a new church, right? It's kind of sprung up somewhere. There's a new building, somebody got a name on it, label on it, and most of them go away, right? But some of them don't. And so then you want to understand, well, what happened that these three vanished, but this one, you know, is growing. So you want to understand, explain those um, engines of growth. And one way to think about that is what are some of the vectors that help spread the beliefs that attract other people? Because a lot of the, a lot of these groups, not all of them, it's really about not so much me forcing you to become a member or to identify with me, but you deciding. So there's something in the message, the ideology, or the belief that's appealing that I kind of internalize this myself, you know, that I want to be a part of. And so for the early Rastas, there were um, different vectors at work. So the one that we would expect is, is that what happens at the level of members? And you have, for instance, people who are street preaching. So if we go back to Leonard Howell, Robert Hines, um, Dunkley, and all of those early evangelists, they would go out and they would set up literally a stump or an oil can or a platform. And they would get up and they would talk about 
this new belief. They would literally preach, right? And people would stop by and listen and catch it. And I, I know this um, beyond the literature because Rasta Ivy and some of the elders would tell me that's how they became interested, that they would pass by and hear these men talking about this black king, this black emperor, this black god. And they would hear it and... You know, after passing by a few times, they stopped listening more, and then they would become enthralled eventually, right? So that was one vector, and that's kind of operating at the local vector, local level, excuse me. So sending this information out, but then if we kind of go back to where we were, then you've got the colonial government, the British colonial government, now prosecuting this new movement and broadcasting it in the newspaper. So now you've got a vector that has much wider reach. All right. And so literally you can reach everyone on the island through this, even people who aren't literate, because one of the things that I learned is, is that people in Jamaica who do not read know exactly what's happening in the newspapers because there are other people who read for them. You know, and so that was like one of the interesting things that it didn't matter whether or not you were literate. You knew what was happening because there were people who would say, oh, here's a paper. Here's what here's what happened today or yesterday in the paper. Right. So there were these vectors um, that operated at different levels. So street preaching, um, the newspaper, and then another vector was, um, and and, I'll include this as a vector, it's foreign literature. So there was literature about this, you know, about Ethiopia, about Ethiopianism that was coming into Jamaica via uh, these diasporic travelers, um, such as um, uh, the Holy Pibby, which is an Ethiopianist track by Robert Alfley Rogers. This literature is coming into Jamaica. You know, there's a preacher, uh, a Garveyite preacher. I can't remember his first name now, but his last name is Webb. I want to say Richard Webb, but it might be Robert Webb. And he, uh, he wrote a track called something like The Universal Black King is Coming. So this literature is coming into Jamaica right around the same time now, right before Haile Selassie's coronation. So there's this substrate of information about blackness, about Ethiopianism, about black redemption that, that's circulating there. So there are all these vectors that help to spread the, the ideology and make it available to people. It's, and it's not so much that... It's indoctrination, but it's out there. And so I think that's one of the things that makes uh, Rasta grow so fast is that there are these vectors making this information available in a way that wouldn't happen were it left to members alone. Thank you so much. And so newspapers were a substantial part of your research. Can you talk Can you talk about uh, some of your most interesting findings and some of your other sources that you use as well? Well, I... Uh, the newspaper part was really, really interesting. And most of what I learned from digging into those old news stories did not make it into the book. In fact, um, I created, or in the process of creating a kind of podcast that kind of goes through and recounts some of these stories and stuff that didn't make it into the book. It's called Pieces from the Cutting Room Floor. So I'll keep you posted on that. Um, but I, you know, so we're both scholars. We both read, and we we know all of this stuff about the past. But to recognize how 
a lot of this was documented in newspapers and we don't use that was kind of mind blowing for me. So there was just so much, for instance, Mikhail, on obia. I don't know if you know what obia is, but obia is a kind of supernatural practice um, where people um, have the ability to do both good and malign uh, bad work, right? Through supernatural practices, right? And just so many stories about Obia uh, permeated the Jamaican newspapers that it it blew my mind. You know, it was like story after story. So-and-so was arrested for practicing Obia, and we found grave dirt, chicken feathers, teeth, uh, whatever other implements that they use as a part of their art and their craft. So just so many of those stories. And I realized, like, there were figures like um, the Forbes, F-O-R-B-E-S is the last name. I want to say that one, the, the man is George, George Forbes. And I think they call his wife Mother Forbes, right? In Jamaica, it would be Mada, M-A-D-D-A, right? Mother Forbes, right? But they were apparently the most powerful Obia slash kind of revival practitioners in Jamaica, and they were in the news all the time. You know, so, so that was one thing. Another thing that really surprised me was just how long and deep the history of ganja is in Jamaica. So, you know, there's stories about ganja in Jamaica that go back to like the 1800s, you know, in the newspaper, you know. And so they've always been concerned with people smoking ganja, as far as I can tell, since ganja arrived in the island. And, you know, it's there, you know. Um, So it's not just something that Rastas were doing. This is something that's part of the culture in a very deep and essential kind of way. So those are two uh, examples of things that I learned that were really surprising and even more surprising that we haven't used those stories more productively, that it's there. And I realize that part of your craft is like, uh, and correct me here, uh, historians are a little bit leery of, of newspapers, right? Is that true? No. Okay. No. So, um, yeah, so we definitely utilize newspapers like in the archives. So, yeah. Okay. All right. Good. So I was, I was a little bit concerned about that at the outset, you know, because I had some historians say, ah, you know, um, those are secondary sources. But what I realized is that, yes, you're right. But I think once you give it context, when you understand the motivation that's behind the story, you understand the context of the story, and you have some sense of how to balance those stories, then I think newspapers can be a very useful and productive source of evidence for whatever it is that you want to understand. And so that was one of the benefits that I had because... One of the questions you asked me is about other evidence that I used. Well, I could I could position those news stories in relationship to oral interviews, life story interviews. So I interviewed all of these elders about their lives. And I could sort of position those news stories and their narratives in relationship to each other. There were um, archive documents, in particular colonial documents, that I reviewed as a, as a part of adding more perspective to kind of make sense out of the news stories. And uh, a lot of the news stories were corroborated. And I think even the ones that were um, outlandish say something about the society and about that press and about that writer. And so one of the editors, um, um, oh my God, his name is, I'm blanking out his name right now, but come to me in a second. 
um, Delisser, I learned that he had a deep antipathy toward Black Jamaicans. And it was informed by a kind of um, pseudoscientific racism. And he took this pseudoscientific racism to heart and it informed the stories because I think part of his motivation, and of course I haven't talked to him and I can't talk to him, but it seemed that his motivation was to make Rastas look as stupid as possible. And he had the platform of being the editor of a national newspaper, and that's what he did. And so the stories that he wrote, I understood, had that slant. And he was part of the vilification of of Rasta people, and he did a very good job of it. it. It wasn't completely effective, but he did a very good job of doing what he did. I kind of lost the thread of your question there, so you can redirect me. Oh, no, that was perfect, actually. So it was about, you know, interesting, uh, most interesting findings. And so you answered that perfectly, honestly, um, for sure. And so um, could you talk about how did international influences such as black nationalism, for instance, but you mentioned many, many more um, in these like different movements. How did they um, influence Rastafari and also shift uh, public attitudes amongst elites? Okay, so. Again, if we go back to that context, 1920s, 1930, there's a lot of black ferment across the globe in predominantly black societies, right? There's a lot of unrest. And so the colonizers are aware of this and they're worried and, and, and they're threatened. Can you ask the first part of the question again? You, know, you said literature? Yeah, no. So just the international influences. Right, right. Okay. Mm-hmm. So a big influence was Marcus Garvey and his short-lived empire, okay? Um, the publication of periodicals that could literally reach the globe because there's a connection between South Africa and Jamaica, all right, that has to do with the Negro world. And so the colonizers, whether they were British or French, or whatever, and I'm not sure whether the Garvey papers were published in languages other than Spanish and English, but they probably were. But the point is, is that that content reached the black diaspora, right? So, so folk were afraid of that, and there were seminal pieces of literature. So, there, so this literature is is moving. If we look at Jamaica, it's moving through the very mobile people in Jamaica who are products of capitalist development in Jamaica, right? So if you can't employ all your people at home, a lot of them start looking abroad. And in fact, the empire kind of makes it possible for them to travel abroad to work in other parts of the empire, right? Um, or related parts of the empire. So a lot of Jamaicans, like I said, are working in Panama, they're working in Cuba, um, they're working in Costa Rica, um, they're working in New York City, just to name a few, right? And so that what they're learning in those places, and there are Garvey chapters in all of those places, right? They're bringing that information back to Jamaica and those perspectives back and that literature back. So there's all this movement of information from abroad into Jamaica during the 1920s into the 1930s. And um, I've not been able to corroborate this again, but I, I recall finding a document that called for banning a number of books and art, uh, articles from the United States and abroad because these were seen as seditious and fomenting Black rebellion in Jamaica, right? So again, um, treatises such as um, 
Webb's uh, There Was a Universal Black King or Robert Anthony Rogers' Holy Pibby, which is the Ethiopianist track. There were all of these publications from abroad that were coming into Jamaica. So there's literature coming into Jamaica that is influencing Black Jamaicans, but also threatening the colonial government, all right, that they're worried that these publications will stir up the indigenous population. Thank you. So we're coming down to some of our last few questions. And so I wanted to ask you about the significance of reggae. And I know you um, mentioned it briefly earlier um, to start off because reggae is something that most people are familiar with when it comes to um, identifying Rastafari. And so what was the significance of reggae music um, during the 20th century? Okay. So if we go back to that idea of vectors, this was a massive vector. So... Reggae is music, and Rastas have their own music, which is not reggae music, but they have their own music, um, Nyabingian music. But the development of reggae drew on this Rasta music, and it drew on it because a lot of these early musicians were also Rastas, not all of them, but a lot of them. And we have to kind of think, of again, we need some context. So we're going back to the 1950s, 1960s, and the new kind of technology is coming into play, right? So records have been around for a while, but records are becoming more accessible and record players are becoming more accessible to more people. There's a radio, right, that can broadcast this music, these sounds to people. And so reggae becomes a powerful vector in that it is now able to disseminate the Rasta beliefs, the message, the ideology, the images as well not only across Jamaica, which is what happens at first, but eventually across the world. And you combine the reggae music in not only the recording format, but also the performances across the island and across the world. These become uh, mediums for spreading the beliefs and the ideology. And I use, for example, um, Rastafari has had much greater impact in the continent of Africa than people recognize. And part of it has to do with the fact that Bob Marley traveled to and performed in Zimbabwe, for instance. And that music was really popular back then in Africa because it kind of, you know, it kind of connected with the zeitgeist of the time, you know, uh, black power, anti-colonialism, black liberation. And so all of these things were coming together. So reggae was really important in spreading the ideology across, I mean, literally across the world. And so you have Rastas now in, in, in places you would never imagine. So um, Maori people in New Zealand, all right, and Australia, you know, you can find Rasta communities there or the Hopi people in the Southwest, you know, Venezuela, um, across Europe, across Africa, Japan, you know, of all places, you know. And so I would argue that reggae was really uh, significant in helping spread those beliefs and make them available to people across the world. For sure. And then also your book, you mentioned, um, you talk about commodification um, of Rastafari. And so, um, yeah, could you talk about that? And then also just some of the new challenges that Rastafari face. And so if we go back to this whole idea of unpredictability, Mikhail. So we go from pariah and outcast to exemplars of black culture and identity to a kind of liminal status today 
between those two things, right? Between those two poles. And what's happening between, again, things we couldn't predict. So who could imagine now that that the image and likeness of rest of people is a commodity, you know, for sale and for sale in a way that doesn't benefit the very people. And I mean, rest aren't the only ones who have this problem, right? You know, I mean, Native America is another good example of people who don't benefit from their own culture, right? Financially, at least. Um, and, and so commodification is one. So the image and likeness and culture of rest of people is, is for sale it's valuable, but it doesn't really financially benefit rest of people. So, for instance, in Jamaica, tourism is literally packaged and sold around coming to Jamaica and meeting these people who have these interesting beliefs and this interesting culture. And you can smoke some ganja, too, while, you, while you're here, right? So kind of selling packaging in that way. A- another aspect of the commodification is the impact that it's had on rest of people themselves. So Rastas have always had an entrepreneurial bent. And it's not just wrestlers, that's kind of like the Jamaican thing. So people in this capitalist economy have to create their own employment because there's no employment there. There are no jobs there for them, so they create their own work. They make stuff, they sell stuff, they higgle, all right? They market. And, and so now many wrestlers I see are in the business of selling wrestler culture, okay? And not necessarily in a, necessarily in a nefarious way, but you know, um, here let me introduce you to Rasta culture, and you can come to our community, and we'll teach you what the drums mean, what our chants mean. We'll introduce you to our style of cooking and food, and you can do all of this for a price. So that so so there, there's that element as well. There is also commodification in the sense of outside of tourism, but one of the stories I tell is about a court case involving Prince and Richard Carew, who wrote, uh, a, well, who wrote, well, I guess writers, kind of coffee table type book with beautiful images of Jamaicans and Rasta people, right? And Richard Prince, the appropriation artist, took these images and really in my view, and I'll just share my view, right? Really debased them. But he made millions of dollars off of this, all right? And again, this did nothing to benefit rest of people. And if anything, it's really kind of opened up the whole issue now of people being able to control and benefit from their own own likeness, you know? So um, if you're going to make some money off of our identity, we need to get a cut of that. And the, the conversation is not there yet, but I think that's where it has to go because the appropriation art is just out there now. You know? um, another commodification issue is the whole Renadred thing, which I, I found kind of fascinating. So, you know, this involves a fantasy of not, not only white women uh, from North America and from Europe, but, but more generally that... Um, you can you can go to Jamaica and you can literally rent a rasta, right? It a rasta man, right? And <laughs> um, the interesting part is that most of these rented rastas are not rastas, right? They are imitating rastas, and so there's a kind of cottage industry around you know this rasta experience where you can kind of rent a rasta that's not really a rasta, 
But there are a whole set of dynamics around this commodification between male and female, black and white, um, and the relationships among those over time, right? A whole bunch of fantasies that play out in both ways. Um, and I, I won't shrug that off because I do think that it really involves some serious issues about race and identity and class, and they're just playing out. But again, if we go back to commodification, this is a part of what's happening with that process. For sure, yeah. All things that are definitely um, concerns. And so our last, my last two questions for you. Um, what do you want readers to gain from reading your book? And then also, what are you working on next? Okay. So what do I want readers to gain? Well, one is to understand the complexity of collective identity, right? To go beyond the surface appearances. If we go back to my metaphor about the tree and roots or the tip of the iceberg and what's below the surface, to really go below the surface and to excavate what's there and to understand what's there. One. Two, to get get people, when I say people, I'm thinking mostly about scholars, to really come to terms with the unpredictability of the world that we live in. Um, there's so much of our discourse that's about prediction and hypotheses, and really there's just a whole lot, Mikhail, that we need to be comfortable with that we can't predict, but we can explain. We just can't tell you where it's going to go next. We can, we can offer uh, thoughtful suggestions about where it might go, but to be really comfortable with the unpredictability and the uncertainty and the surprise of the universe that we live in, to be really comfortable with that. Another is to, to show the relationship between race and faith. You know, in this particular case, between blackness and religion and the inseparability of blackness and faith for many black people. So when we talk about about black identity and black culture too often, especially in psychology, you know, I see a separation where they don't acknowledge the role that faith pays plays in the identities of many, many black people across the world, not just in the United States or in the Caribbean, but across the world. And so if you want to understand blackness, then you have to be prepared to incorporate that kind of religious element or component as part of the explanation and what's behind that. I also wanted to speak to social movement scholars, to social movement scholars to think differently about the origins of social movements and how social movements develop. So again, going back to the unpredictability part, right? And I get so frustrated, Mikhail, that, you know, every time we get uh, a potential movement, you know, we get we get so far ahead that we, we, we're not thinking, uh, we don't know where this thing is going to go. So let's just think, take the um, Occupy Wall Street, right? Think about that, right? Oh, everybody thought that that was going to like, you know, take over the world, right? That, that fizzled out. You know, and that's not surprising. Or think about the globalization battles of the, I don't know, you're not as old as me, but like the 1990s, you know, the battle in Seattle, right? You know, back then we thought that, hey, man, we're going to take down globalization, but that didn't happen, right? And it's understandable. We can explain why it didn't happen, right? But the, the thing is that we often think that social movements are going to become something that they're not going to become. And I think if we step back and open up ourselves to the unpredictability, the emergence and the surprise, that we just have to kind of follow them where they go. 
rather than predict that they're going to do X, Y, or Z. Or even more so for us now is to 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 almost wish for social movements in the ways that we think about the civil rights movement, for instance, or those leaders of, of those movements of you know the 60s and 70s and the 50s, right? Because those movements did have tremendous impact and they did change the world. And we're asking the question, where are they now? You know, and I think if you sort of step back and you look at the world from a nonlinear perspective, then perhaps you'll start you'll stop wishing for a new movement, right? And start thinking about the movements that are currently here and what what they're doing and to focus on those. So, you know, Black Lives Matter is an interesting one for me. Um, I think people put far too much, they invested far too much hope in it uh, in terms of what it could actually do and what it can actually do. But it's a story that remains open and we just don't know where it's going to go. You know, that's kind of like how I look at that. And, and then finally, I would say that I wanted to put another kind of history out there of the rest of people. You know, there are histories that are out there already. And I just wanted to write a different kind of history because basically it's a history for the most part. Yeah. So I wanted to write a different kind of history informed by different questions um, and focused on different processes from some of the work that's out there. And so what am I working on now, Mikhail? So a few years ago, uh, a colleague and I, uh, a colleague who's no longer alive, but we started a project on Black men and resilience in the United States. And so we've been, um, we started out a few years ago um, interviewing and spending time with Black men in Greensboro, North Carolina and Hartford, Connecticut. And we're trying to understand how what makes for resilience among black men and to examine the knowledge that black men use that they summon to support their resilience. And I think that's a way to sort of take the, take some of the light off blackness as a pathology or black masculinity as a pathology and to kind of look at what, what, what do men do to take care of themselves to survive what knowledge and what networks do they draw on to to survive in circumstances that are stacked against them? Well, I definitely look forward to work in the future, and I definitely hope that you'll be back on. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Price. For You're very welcome. And I enjoyed every second of it, Mikhail. Thank you so much. Okay. All right.